After a strenuous day of trekking in the jungles of Madagascar, veteran traveler Hilary Brett was surprised just how much she liked a snack the villagers offered, tree hoppers. Actually, they're very good. They tasted a bit like peanuts, and it was only after I'd finished a whole bowl of them that I realized that they were insects rather than the peanuts that I thought they were. Coming up, we also find out what's new in Scotland. There's an exhibit opening up on the Celtic people of Britain that you might enjoy at the Scottish National Museum. The Romans thought they were barbarians, but they left a long tradition of beautiful bracelets and jewellery and carved stones and things. And American historian David McCullough has a suggestion to help us all be better travellers. Be patient and don't be in a hurry all the time. Sometimes you feel you have to see everything. Very often it's just better to sit down in a nice cafe and you suddenly hear things, learn things that you never would have known otherwise. There's plenty of adventure for all of us to enjoy in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Even though their independence referendum failed, there's no denying the feisty spirit of the people of Scotland. Coming up, we'll hear what visitors to Edinburgh can look for this year. And historian David McCullough returns to travel with Rick Steves to tell us about some of his favorite places to visit, both at home and abroad. Let's start with a look at an island twice the size of Britain, the homeland of our first guest. And while it's one of the poorest countries on Earth, Hilary Bratt writes in her guidebooks to Madagascar that the overriding impression you find there is one of joy and laughter. Oh, and there are lemurs. When Hilary Bratt and her husband George started trekking to exotic locales more than 40 years ago, little did she suspect that she'd become one of the veteran adventurers of our time, or that their travel notes would turn into a huge series of guidebooks that helps us to plan visits to some of the most unlikely places. She joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us why Madagascar is one of her favorite places anywhere. Hilary, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Hilary, you write guidebooks for, or you publish guidebooks for all over the world. What's special about Madagascar? Can you describe it? I know it's, it has a big place in your heart. I think it's its differentness. I first fell in love with it in uh, 1976 when George and I, my ex-husband and I, first went there. And we'd spent a couple of years in Africa by that time and didn't expect Madagascar to be that different. And it's utterly different. The, the landscape, the people and the wildlife are different from anywhere else in the world. Now, it's a huge island. Well, it's about twice the size of the United Kingdom and has a French colonial heritage. I was just kind of browsing through your book and looking at the map and it occurred to me there's no real dominant city. That's one of the ways that it differs so much from, say, Europe, is that you don't go to Madagascar for the cities. The, there is a capital, but it's, I think it's two million inhabitants. You know, it's small, maybe less than that. So the name of the capital is Antananarivo, but most people shorten it to Tana. But when you think about Madagascar, you think of the environment, don't you? You think of the environment. And I always say when people are asking me about visiting Madagascar, I say that really, if you have no interest in wildlife, there's probably not much point in going there. I mean, it has wonderful beaches, but there are other places right. that have wonderful beaches. So it really is the wildlife and actually the culture of the people that, that make it so different. What is it about the culture of the people that would be charming to you? 
my understanding, it's a desperately poor place with, with a ravaged environment uh, from a development point of view and so on. Well, that, that's the impression, sadly, that the media tend to give. And in, in a way, it's good in that it draws attention to its environmental problems. But as you pointed out earlier, it is a huge place. So there's still a lot of forest and a lot of wildlife remaining. Um, the people are, they're so different because they, there was no indigenous population until humans first arrived about 2000 years ago. And they arrived not from Africa, as you'd expect, but from Malaysia, across the Indian Ocean, Malaysia, Indonesia. And so their characteristics, their racial characteristics are, are, are very different from mainland Africa on the whole. And their culture is as well, and their practices and their customs and so on is, is quite different from their, their neighbor in Africa. This is the major place on Earth, other than Antarctica or, or maybe Greenland, that had no people living on it 2,000 years ago, and humans were sort of the late arrivals. I think for a, a place that size, it is very unusual, yes. And, and particularly a place so near the birthplace of mankind, which is Africa. One of the fascinating things about Madagascar is that it's culturally diverse, but it's completely unified in, in their practices. And one of the unifying factors is that they all worship their ancestors, when I say all of them. Traditionally, they venerate, would be a better word, they venerate their mm -hmm. ancestors. And the ancestors have enormous power. And actually, that's one of the problems, as well as one of the pleasures of Madagascar, is that if you're always doing things the way that your grandfather did, because his spirit is telling you to do that, it makes it difficult to progress the way the Western world thinks that uh, countries should progress. Ages ago, when I first went there in the 80s, I heard the story about an aid program, and they were worried about the Malagasy houses, which are almost all made of mud or bamboo and very fragile, and there were a lot of uh, cyclones, there still are a lot of cyclones. So this aid program donated a lot of concrete cement to a village to help them improve their houses. And what they did was improve the tombs, their ancestors' tombs, because the ancestors' tombs last forever, whereas a house just lasts a lifetime. Hilary Bratz, the co-founder of the Intrepid Brat Guidebook series and one of the foremost experts on travel to the island of Madagascar. Her website is hilarybratt.com. That's spelled B-R-A-D-T. Her destination guides are at bratguides.com. Hilary, it was so fun looking through your Madagascar guidebook, Hilary Bratt's Madagascar, and you mentioned you discovered some of the strangest creatures in the world. What do you mean? Oh, it, that, that's what makes it so wonderful. And I think the reason that most tourists visit Madagascar is because of the lemurs. And lemurs are relatives of monkeys, relatives of us. They're, they're primates. But they're completely different because they had no natural predators. And the evolution, the development of nature in Madagascar is fascinating because it's been separated from the mainland for about 200 million years. So uh, a long, long time. And Madagascar's creatures evolved without any large predators. There were no big cats. There were no hunting dogs. There were no bears. There was nothing. Your cute little lemur, it's a nice place to call home. You call it in your book, The Eighth Continent and the Holy Grail for Wildlife Fans mentioning that 
because of its isolation, uh, got unique plant and animal species, 80% of them, uh, which exist nowhere else on the planet. That's right. And what's so fascinating about the lemurs is because they did make it across, and we don't quite know how, but perhaps on rafts of vegetation, just at the uh, very beginning of the evolution of mammals, they've diversified into now it's about 100 species. Hilary, I've got to ask you, because when people think about Madagascar, it seems to me they think about eating insects. Have you eaten insects in Madagascar, and what's that all about? Well, it it isn't something that everyone does. (laughs) It's something I did when I first went there in 1976, because, uh, to cut a very long story short, my husband, George, and I got lost in the jungle for four days, and we ended up with our guide, who actually had never been there before, collecting these rather large insects, leafhoppers they're called, And when we did eventually get to a village, they were roasted for us, and uh, we were given them. We were very hungry by that time. And actually, they're very good. They tasted a bit like peanuts, and it was only after I'd finished a whole bowl of them that I realized that they were insects rather than the peanuts that I thought they were. And what did you think after you had digested a whole bowl of insects without knowing it? It was absolutely fine. I recommend anyone to eat insects. <laughs> Good. You also talked about, well, I just love this in your chapter. There's, there's obviously a lot of beaches on this island nation, and, and you wrote, you made the only footprints on deserted beaches under coconut palms and swam under the moonlight. Tell me more about that. Yes, that's something that you can still do it if you're camping, say, in a fairly remote place. I've certainly made the first footsteps in the sand because I've been going there such a long time, since 1976, and always as a guidebook researcher finding new places, and very often that was a new beach. But I think one of the most exciting things I've done was when I was tour leading and staying in quite a smart hotel on a beach, and I just slipped out at midnight and went into the sea, went skinny dipping, there was absolutely no one around, And the sea was absolutely full of phosphorus. And so every stroke I made through this beautiful, lukewarm Indian Ocean, I was highlighted in blue-green of phosphorus. And it's one of the most memorable experiences, one of the best memories I've got at the island, I think. Oh, that sounds just wonderful. Also, you write about you snorkeled over technicolor coral reefs and watched lobsters out for a stroll. This sadly does pick up on what you were saying earlier about the island being ravaged. When I first went there in the 70s and even the early 80s, it was absolutely pristine. The coral was pristine. But since then, the population has doubled since I first went there. And, of course, that's a huge pressure on the environment, including the marine environment. And sadly, the people have fished by dynamite very often. They use dynamite to kill fish, which is outlawed now, but they did then. And an awful lot of the coral reefs have been either spoiled or completely overfished. Mm. So my experience again back in the 70s of watching a lobster strolling along the seafloor, I don't think you wouldn't easily get that experience Mm. now. But people are always finding new places. There are marine national parks, so it's not impossible Hilary, when we think about Madagascar, so many people go for the lemurs and and the famous natural wonders, but a lot of times we fly home thinking it's the people that we'll remember. In fact, that's what you wrote in your book, it's the people that you remember. You write that Madagascar may be one of the poorest countries in the world, yet the overriding impression is of joy and laughter. It's, It's interesting. When I'm leading trips there, and I also lecture on cruise ships, so sometimes I'm taking fairly 
inexperienced adventure travellers to a place that's poorer than they've ever been to before. And initially they're horrified, you know, they're horrified to see barefoot children. And all I have to say is just have a, have a look, you know, get past your own hang-ups really and look at the way the fathers are playing with their children, look at the way they're sitting outside their huts laughing and chatting and just look at their faces and then think about the faces at home on our underground or in London or whatever and judge for yourself who mm. is the best off. Boy, those are words of wisdom from somebody who's done a lot of, not only a lot of travel, a lot of thoughtful traveling. I, I know you live in England, we live in the United States, and in, in our society, well-being is, is almost always preceded by material. It's hyphenated. It's almost the same word now, material well-being. But in Madagascar, maybe there's a kind of well-being we can all learn about. Hilary Bratt, author of The Bratt Guide to Madagascar, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Friends from Scotland, take your calls next at 877-333-7425 as we hear their recommendations for getting the most out of a trip to Edinburgh this year. Also, David McCullough tells us about the places he's visited across the United States while researching his bestsellers on American history. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, believing that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture offering a method of immersion and speech recognition to help you learn one of 30 languages. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Perhaps the first thing you notice in the drive-in from the airport is the impressive Georgian architecture and all the monuments that boast that you are in an elegant city. Then visit the big castle on the hill and walk the Royal Mile to the Queen's Palace at the other end, and you'll know it's an important city as well, with plenty of history. And with one of Europe's liveliest art scenes, it's no surprise that Edinburgh in Scotland is attracting more and more visitors. To help us plan a fun trip to enjoy Edinburgh and nearby, we're joined by three certified guides from Scotland. Anne Doig and Brian Hay live in Edinburgh, and Liz Lister lives nearby, just across the waterway, in Fife. Anne, Liz, Brian, it's good to have you here. Thank you. you. (laughs) Now, when we think about going to Scotland, uh, Edinburgh is usually people's first destination, What's new in Edinburgh? If we've been there before, what should we know about? Brian, anything that comes to mind? Well, in recent years and after many, many problems, we have a very nice tram system that is now up and operating and taking everybody through the centre of the town and out to the airport. So if you fly into the Edinburgh airport now, the economic and probably fast way to get into town is hop on the tram. Definitely hop on the tram and it takes you straight from the airport right into the very centre of Edinburgh. That's big news and Mm -hmm. and that'll save a lot of money for people who'd hop in a taxi otherwise. That's right, that's right. Uh, Mm. Anne, what about you? What's new in Edinburgh? Well, this year, there's an exhibition that's come from the British Museum on the Celtic people of Britain and all the wonderful jewellery and artefacts that they created. So this is a temporary exhibit? From March to September. Of 2016. The Scottish National Museum. I think it'll be excellent because there's been a lot on television about the Celtic heritage And this is coming from where? The British Museum in London. From London. So mm-hmm. they're respecting the Celtic dimension of, of course, Great Britain. Yes, yes. Celebrating this culture that was 
outside of uh, the mainstream of Europe, really. That's right. Yes, it's a British Celtic heritage rather than European. A lot, a lot European. of people miss, they underestimate the culture and the art of the Celtic world. Exactly, because the Romans thought they were barbarians, but they left a long tradition of beautiful bracelets and jewelry and carved stones and things. So 1,500, 1,800 years ago, there was culture beyond the Roman Empire? Yes. <laughs> they didn't think so, but there was. North of Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> yes. And Liz Lister, what is new in uh, Edinburgh for you? Well, we were very lucky in 2015 because Edinburgh got its third World Heritage Site, which is the fourth rail bridge. So um, this Gustav Eiffel, who knew a thing or two about civil engineering, he described it as the wonder of its generation. So this is from the age of Eiffel, the late 1800s? That's right, yes. And what's the bridge called? The fourth rail bridge. So it takes traffic every day, takes trains across over 200 a day, go backwards and forwards between Fife and Edinburgh across the Firth of Forth. The Forth? Yeah, the River Forth. The River Forth. (laughs) So so what is the Firth of Forth? Well, a Firth in Scotland is equivalent to a fjord in, Ah. in Scandinavia. So it's where the river exits to the sea. Later this year, we'll have another uh, second road bridge across the Firth of Forth, and uh, it's called the Queen's Ferry Crossing. Uh-huh. The environmentalists have always had their own name for it because they reckon the more bridges you have, the more traffic you create. Oh, so yeah. they've always called it Bridge Over the River. Why? Why? You know, the big news uh, in the last year or so was uh, the vote to see if Scotland yeah. could be independent. And uh, you guys had a good democratic debate, a nice open discussion, quite an impressive uh, example of, of democracy, I'd say. And, of course, Scotland voted to stay with the United Kingdom, with, with Britain. But I think that Britain got, uh, London got a little desperate at the end and, and made a lot of concessions for Scottish autonomy. Just very quickly, now that you've settled in, and this is sort of in the past, how has Scotland done because of this election, uh, Anne? Well, they haven't actually decided yet. The concessions, it's gone all vague because they got a bit worried and, and Cameron mm-hmm. gave these concessions. But... There was a conference a few months ago, but it's all gone quiet on that front. So but they had, threw a lot of concessions at you, but threw, you may not see them, huh? No, they threw a lot of promises. Promises, mm-hmm. and they haven't really fulfilled them. And Brian, is that your take on that also? Uh, I, th- I think it is my take as well. But also what has happened and what has slightly overtaken uh, the concessions is that last year, 2015, we had a general election for the whole of the United Kingdom. And the Scottish National Party, who up until that point had held six seats in the Parliament, they increased and they're up to 56. So in Scotland, they won every single seat that was up for election, bar two. And the feeling is that now, if that is repeated next year for the Scottish election, for the Scottish Parliament, which would only look after Scottish affairs, if that is a similar result, then we might well end up with another referendum. So, so whatever concessions may happen, the referendum question, I think, will come back again. So the story is with us. We'll stay Definitely. tuned for that. And uh, the last thing I'd like to talk about in the way of kind of news is this wildly successful uh, Outlander series. Uh, well, tell us about that, uh, Liz. Well, this is a very interesting series by uh, an author, which people will probably know very well, Diana Gbaldon. And she was a mum who wanted to earn her living by writing a novel. She was a scientist and she wanted to do it by research. So she saw an episode of Doctor Who, which is a science fiction series in the UK. And in it, there was a character called Jamie who wore a kilt. And so she chose as her topic, the Jacobite era. She researched it really well, so very accurate. But these are rip-roaring tales. They cross science fiction into 
historic, romantic novels. So this is a TV series based on this series of historic, romantic novels Absolutely. set in Scotland. And it's quite popular. And do you see a lot of uh, tourists coming in with this in mind? They want yeah. to see... The slight irony is that it was very unpopular in our country. And for whatever reasons, and we don't know, or maybe you can shed light on it, when the books were produced here, they were called cross-stitch. They were not called Outlander. And for us, ah. cross-stitch is something to do with sewing. Uh, <laughs> so no television company in the United Kingdom has bought the rights to the Diana Galbadon series, but it's huge everywhere else. So it is impacting tourism. And if somebody, oh, yes, and if yes. some, and it, would it be a, a reasonable thing to do if you're planning a trip to Scotland to check out the Outlander Definitely. series? Definitely. So there's a whole variety of websites who are doing Jamie and Claire tours. And it also, the television series just won a number of people's awards so in, we've, we've in got the this, States. We've got this whole sort of genre. There's the Downton Abbey, the Poldark. Absolutely. And I can imagine seeing Downton Abbey and going to uh, England and having a little more Absolutely. feel for what that life was like. And mm. Poldark, before you go down to Cornwall and going to Edinburgh. Yeah, I had one of my tour members this year who carried a cardboard cutout of Jamie with her and had her photograph taken in all of the venues which are used in the TV series as wow. locations. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by three Scottish guides, Brian Hay, Anne Doig and Liz Lister. We're talking about Edinburgh. We're talking about Scotland. And you're welcome to join the conversation. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And George is calling from Brandon in Manitoba. George, are you thinking about going to Edinburgh? Yes, I'm going to Edinburgh this coming May, actually. Well, how can our guides help you? Well, I was just looking for things to do. I was going to look for a couple of days in Edinburgh itself and then maybe a couple of day trips. Just well, trying well, to get some ideas. What would be the best thing for me to do while I'm there? Let's talk about day trips from Edinburgh. George has four days. He's going to spend two days in Edinburgh, and any guidebook can explain the obvious things to do for two days in Edinburgh, but two days for side-tripping from Edinburgh. And well, I immediately would go to St. Andrews because I grew up there. <laughs> okay, that's, that's one of the things I wanted to know. And it's St. Andrews easy to is, reach. Uh, it's a, a university? It's a university town uh, on the beach. Chariots of Fire was filmed there. It's a neat little place to walk around and it's easy to get to from Edinburgh. There's a train and a little bus that will take you into the town. It's a neat little town and to And golfers love to go there, but it's complicated to get a, a, a tea a time. A tea time. It? If you're a golfer, it's very difficult to get tea time, but you can always putt on the putting green. That's right. <laughs> now, I, I love that town and, and to get there from Edinburgh is a day trip. How long of a train ride is it? It's about an hour. About and an then hour. There's, a, there's a bus that takes about 20 minutes, 10 minutes maybe, okay. it's just two miles. It connects with the train. Okay, so George, St. Andrews would be a great day. And just a wee thing, this is a funny thing, but there's no train that says St. Andrews. It's the Dundee or Aberdeen train and you get off at Luchers. So that's something you really have to sort of watch out for. But that's how you get there. There's no train that takes you to St. Andrews. Well, there's people on the train that speak a little English. Yes. yes. <laughs> you can ask them. And the other thing about St. Andrews is that there are six golf courses down where the famous old courses. And although the old course is very, very difficult to get uh, okay. to play on, good chance to get on to one of the other courses. Brian, after St. Andrews, what would you do for your second day as a side trip? Uh, for uh, another side trip, I think I would head up a bit further north and then cross that wonderful division line that we have in Scotland, which divides the lowlands, which is where Edinburgh is, where George is going to fly into, and to take him up into the highlands. So heading up in towards places like Pitlochry and going further north, 
just to see this huge contrast that we have uh, in our scenery and just to experience the wonderful Highland scenery. So, so I think as a matter of practicality, you might want to, rather than taking two day trips from Edinburgh, if you're going to St. Andrews and then get a dose of the Highlands, you might want to sleep overnight at the north end of that two-day excursion. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and, you could and sleep and in Inverness, I think, and then, yes. and then you could uh, enjoy some of the Highlands. Liz Lister, if, if you're going to Edinburgh and you want to uh, look at sort of contemporary Scotland in, in a more of an urban sense... What would you recommend? Well, I think it's important to point out the short distances. Mm -hmm. So taking again the contrast, um, going into the station at Waverley, within 45 minutes you can be in the second city of Scotland, Glasgow. And Glasgow is very much a contrast to Edinburgh. It was the large industrial city, a Victorian city. It was called by many to be the second city of the empire. So you have fantastic architecture there, but also really tremendous art collection. So you can go to the Kelvin Grove Gallery, you can go to the Macintosh House. And uh, so if you're into art, if you're into transport, again, Glasgow built many of the large um, ship-going vessels. And, uh, Wasn't it like a third of all the ships on the sea were Absolutely, were on the River Clyde. Amazing that to think that, a th- I forget exactly, but a, a, a huge percent of all the ships at sea were built in in Glasgow. Absolutely. So I think it's important to stress doing your research beforehand because Scotland can meet every interest. Now, a lot of people are going to go to Glasgow excited about Charles Rainey Mackintosh and the art school there, but I heard they had a fire. They did. A disastrous fire. A projector um, caught fire from one of the students and it destroyed this building. So what they're doing, they've got, um, they've been very lucky in the grants that they've been able to, to access and they're taking it very slow, very painstaking so that it's restored as much as possible okay. to the original. But you know, Glasgow is, to me, it has the energy of today's Scotland and it's, it really balances out your trip to Edinburgh. So George, there you got some ideas for your side tripping. Yeah, that's got, great. Thanks very and, much. And one more just, tip here from Sorry, from I just want to hop in because modern Scotland, to me, the best place to go is to the Falkirk Wheel and the Kelpies. It's about 45 minutes from Edinburgh. Falkirk Wheel was the first wheel. It's a way of moving a, a ship. It's on a pod and a wheel. Uh-huh. And it pulls up the, the ship 100 feet you haven't heard about the Falkirk No, wheel. so this is a big industrial age it was um, a industrial place. for shipping. It's mo- this is modern because the, okay. the canal, the canal uh, went into disuse. Right. And they've reopened the canal, but there's houses built on it. So instead of 10 flights of... Um, locks. Locks. There's this wheel that you put your little boat into and it takes as much energy to, to make a bit of toast just to get it going. It works on the Archimedes oh, yeah. and it lifts your boat in a pod... 100 feet up. The Falkirk Wheel. Falkirk Wheel. And also beside that are the Kelpies, two enormous 100 feet Kelpies, which are just amazing. Kelpie is a water horse and they're fantastic. It's a great visit. 100 foot, what is it, a statue It's a statue made out of little discs. Stainless steel. Stainless steel. Originally, it was intended that this would be functional. It would be another of these locks transporting the vessels from Uh one canal to another. But the engineering challenges were too great that it's purely artistic now, but it's absolutely stunning. Oh, it really moves Mm -hmm. me. George, thanks for your call. There's a lot of (laughs) ideas for you. Great, yes. Thanks very (laughs) much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. We're getting excited about visiting Scotland and its lovely capital, Edinburgh, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Liz Lister, Brian Hay, and Anne Doig. Zach is calling from Brooklyn, New York. And Zach, uh, are you thinking of uh, Edinburgh or getting out into the Highlands? Or, or what are in your Scottish travel dreams? Yeah, exactly. So so like George, I'm also uh, going to Edinburgh in uh, late April, early May. 
I have a similar question to him. Uh, so I'm spending three days in Edinburgh, and I'd like to spend one of those days day tripping up to the Highlands, like you guys were mentioning. And I know that there are a lot of uh, tour companies that will do day trips to leave Edinburgh in the morning and come back uh, late, in, late in the evening. And they all look pretty similar, all hitting kind of similar sites uh, in the Highlands, Loch Ness, etc. cetera. Uh, was wondering if you guys could help me kind of choose between them, if you have any recommendations for any specific companies that do a particularly great job, if there are any particular sites that I ought to not miss uh, on a trip to the Highlands, and also if you had any recommendations for great pubs in Edinburgh. That <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, this is the classic American problem. We don't have enough time. We want to see Edinburgh and the Highlands, and we've only got three or four days. So given the fact that this is a horrible uh, reality, that you only have one day for, quote, the Highlands, there are companies in Edinburgh that work very hard, and they're very competitive to take you out into the countryside. Uh, I'll let each of you just uh, give your take on that. Is it worth the trouble if you have one day? And what would you see? Uh, you can do it in one day. And, and the, the good thing about Scotland at that time of the year is we have very long days, so lots and lots of daylight. Mm-hmm. But it is a long journey. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you're restricted on time, there are plenty of, of companies, as you rightly say, that will take you from Edinburgh, head over towards the west, up to the north, across, and then down to the east. Yeah, probably a very scenic uh, road trip, yeah, if nothing else. Yeah, fantastic journey. And you'll see a bit yeah. of uh, everything, but a long drive. And what would you uh, put on the well, list. well, if you've got two days, I would I would really recommend two days. And there's, there's mm-hmm. a couple of companies, Rabbi's Trailblazers. What's the other ones? Scotland, Highland Expedience, Happy Haggis, Sexy Happy Haggis. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. They have such clever names. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you book hostels or you book your own B and B, but it's two or three. They do days. a two day trip then from Edinburgh. That yes, would be much That'd better. Be much better Zach, I, think, I would highly yeah. recommend that too. Uh, yeah. Is make it two days if you're going to go on a tour. Because you'll have a night in a small town then instead of a a long day coming back to Edinburgh exhausted. Mm -hmm. I think it's a question of priorities because as Anne and and Brian have both pointed out, if you do one of those, they are budget tours and it will be going to each site, getting out, taking photographs and it will be very, very regimented. If you really value your time in Scotland, then a little more investment, you could hire a guide for the day as a driver guide who could meet your individual needs and now, really... That would be great. So look into that, Zach. There are driver guides. You can look on different uh, crowdsourcing services on the web and so on and, and find out a, a driver guide and hire him for a day. And that might be your uh, your luxurious way to do the Highlands in a day. As far as pubs go, um, you know, Zach wants to go to a pub. Uh, let's just uh, let you guys share your favorite pub tip when you're in Edinburgh. Brian. Where do I start? Um, <laughs> plenty of them, but again, if you're going to be staying in the centre with your time constraints, I imagine you would do. Uh, very, very close to Princess Street is Guildford Arms. That's we were, I was going to say Royal, that, Cafe Royal. Yeah. Bar. But these are pubs that are very old, very traditional. Uh, some of them will have Scottish music, maybe at the weekends. Lots of drinks and lots of samples of whiskey and also of the real ales and the microbreweries that we have. And how about you for... I was going to say the same thing. What's actually. the name of the pub again? The Guildford Arms. Why the Guildford Arms of all the hundreds of pubs? Because it's in the traditional Victorian style and the uh-huh. locals go there, hmm. even though it's just off Princess Street. Yeah. It's just behind the main drag. But mm-hmm. Guildford and the Arms. And the Cafe Royal's next to it. Cafe Royal has those incredible etched glass yes. Yes. windows. Yeah. tiles so and things. the delightful Victorian, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, a part, it's very much a part of Scottish culture, so you can go to Rose Street or whatever, but you have to appreciate that if you're in the city centre, it uh-huh. will be largely tourists, although there will be business trade. 
get out a little bit and you'll get a really authentic Scottish pub. And what I would recommend is, you know, uh, Zach, talk to your bed and breakfast host or whoever your hotel is and and say... You yeah, want to I'm go to a place? At, uh, Grass Market is that near there? Yes, yes. very yes. close. You got yeah. lots of pubs yeah. down there. Yeah, yeah. the last but, drop. Fantastic. Last drops good in the Grass Market. And there's yeah. lots of live folk music in Edinburgh. Mm. Uh, that sounds just great. Have a good time, Zach. Thanks for your call. Great. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, guys. Bye bye. You bet. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Scotland and Edinburgh and what's new and in one of the most popular destinations these days in the UK. I'd like to thank Liz Lister, Anne Doig, and Brian Hay for joining us and. Um, Hope to see you in Scotland. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. On the beautiful path of Forth, people on the moon. Burn a blast, you. One of America's best loved historians joins us next to tell us how his travels around the United States and abroad have helped him set the scene for his epic bestsellers, David McCullough and his favorite travels. That's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. This is a blessing, very powerful blessing from a, a Bulgarian heart and Bulgarian soul. And get ready for some Bulgarian. Surva, surva gudina, vesela gudina, červena jabolka v gradina, zlatin kvasna niva, polna kushta sa slanina i kuprina, život i zdrave do gudina, Amen. And what did you say in English? And I said roughly the following. Let this year be very fruitful. Let we have red apples on the trees. Let we have golden wheat in the fields. Silk and bacon in our home. But let us all be very healthy. Be healthy. Stefan Bozadjev from Bulgaria. Blagodaria. Blagodaria. Thank you, Rick. He's become one of America's most respected and popular historians thanks to the vivid portraits he's created in his bestsellers on Presidents John Adams, Harry Truman, and Theodore Roosevelt. And he's also explored topics like building the Panama Canal and the Brooklyn Bridge and the devastation of the Johnstown Flood. David McCullough's latest book detailing the genius of the Wright brothers was a bestseller the week it was released. He's put in a lot of miles researching the stories and people he recreates for us on the written page. David McCullough joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share some of his favorite destinations where you, too, can get a feel for the important places and people in the history of the United States. David, thanks for joining us. Thank you. You know, this is a travel show, and uh, most of us travel for recreation and to experience our world. I imagine you travel a lot for your work. How do you enjoy traveling? And has travel itself ever sparked an idea for a book of yours? Well, I've loved traveling ever since I was a child. Uh, not that I went very far, but the, the few trips I did take just changed my life. I was thrilled by them. I went to uh, Monticello, for example, as a young high school student, and I went to Williamsburg and Gettysburg, and I have no doubt whatsoever that those experiences increased my love of history, my curiosity about history, because somehow when you're at the place where something really happened, it's not just some dry textbook rendition of something you have to know for a test. And you get a feeling of the human beings that were there. What always strikes me is that everything is bigger than I expected. The battlefields at Gettysburg were much bigger than I ever imagined. The same happened when I went to the Argonne, where Harry Truman fought in the battle during World War I. I couldn't believe how big it was. 
Kitty Hawk, where the Wrights first flew their plane, the sweep of the, mm-hmm. uh, the outer banks of North Carolina, the scale of it all. You have to have a sense, and of course, anybody who travels through the West, wherever the Oregon Trail went or wherever some of these people had to cross great spaces, the scale of, the, of our country. But there's an art of travel, because you can travel and not be impacted. Yes. Or you could travel and be impacted. Yes. And I think one of the things you have to do is talk to people when you get there and talk to all kinds of people. That's the mark of a good traveler, how you connect Absolutely. with people. Absolutely. Talk to people and, and be patient. And don't be in a hurry all the time. Sometimes you feel you have to see everything. Very often it's just better to sit down in a nice cafe or start chatting with someone on a park bench along <laughs> the river or whatever, and you suddenly hear things, learn things that you never would have known otherwise. Now, you're on a book tour now going all over the yes. United States, and I imagine you've met a lot of people. And when I'm on a, a book tour uh, around the country, it has me thinking a lot of things about America. As you travel around our country today, do you find yourself pondering observations? Uh, what makes you optimistic? What, what troubles you as you're on the road? Well, that's a very good question. I would say one of the things that troubles me is the obvious epidemic of obesity that you see everywhere all ages, and it's sad, and it's worrisome, and we've got to figure out what's causing it. I'm also sometimes appalled by the traffic jams at rush hour in every city where you're caught in traffic that can have you sitting doing getting nowhere for an hour or more. But that aside, every time I go out on a tour or give a lecture somewhere, I always come back reassured that we are a good country. We are a good people, and great things are being accomplished. It isn't all bad news. It isn't all a sign of decadence or indifference to the virtues and values and privileges of being an American. And it never fails. There's something going on in every one of our cities that you can take heart from. And when you talk to people on the road, you're more aware of that. And you say to someone, what's happening here? And they say, oh, let me tell you. And they're proud of it, and they should be. So you got it. And you people. haven't read about it. You haven't heard about it. You don't know about it because the, the bad news is what makes news. Good news is seldom reported. Really, unfortunately, true. Yes. And uh, we may be famously uh, lousy with foreign languages, but one thing we are good at is striking up a conversation. Yes. And we need to use that skill when we're on the road, especially. And how much in other parents countries. care about their children and grandchildren, and how much they want to be sure that they get the most out of their education, that they get the most out of their first jobs, that they have confidence, that they have trust in the system, but that they have to participate. Mm -hmm. I think traveling makes one a better patriot. There's an old saying, and I'm sure you've known it as long as I have, when you travel abroad, the country that you learn the most about is your own. That is so clear to me. I see our country in higher definition from a distance. The problems and the beauties. Yes. I have a granddaughter who just came back not long ago, from a trip to Thailand and Vietnam. And when she got back, we had a chance to chat. She just had graduated from college. And I said, there's this old saying, that what country you learn about most when you travel abroad is your own. Did you come back with a new feeling about any aspect of our country that you never felt before you went to those different countries? She said, oh, yes. I said, what? That we have clean water. Well, that's a huge thing. Isn't that wonderful? And we take it for granted. We take it for and granted. And we shouldn't take it for granted. We have trees. We have a public library system. No country in the world has anything like our public library system. Free to everybody. 
Two Pulitzer Prizes are among the awards on David McCullough's shelf. His books illuminate the lives of influential people and events in American history. And words out that Tom Hanks is turning David's latest bestseller about the Wright Brothers into an HBO miniseries. His website is davidmccullough.com. You know, when we're traveling, architecture, you know, is a big deal. We see a lot of impressive buildings. It's a big part of our travel. And I understand that when people ask you who is the most influential of all of your writing teachers, you credit... He wasn't a writing teacher. He wasn't a writing teacher at all. No, it was Vincent Scully, who was a very famous historian of art and architecture at Yale University and one of the the most brilliant lecturer I've ever heard. And he made me see. He helped me see, and he did this for thousands of others, in a way I'd never seen before. He made me want to go to Italy and Florence and Paris and England, all these places, to see the great works of architecture and art. And Greece, oh my goodness, his lectures on Greece were phenomenal. So did he inspire you, David, to want to go out and see? Or did, yes. he, did he teach you how to see? Both. What did he teach I you I remember about that? we were stepping out of a, a section of the university one evening after a dinner. Uh-huh. It was springtime. The sun was still hitting the tops of the towers of the campus. And he looked up at the Strathcona, this building, the tower, and he said, look at that building right now in the light that's hitting it. He said, architects don't build with stone and steel and glass. They build with light. And I thought, whoa, whoa. And I still feel that they do. They build with light. We looked out of our hotel window today in downtown Seattle. And the light across, the I guess it was across the, love it. the sound, oh, breathtaking and sharp. Now, you write so prolifically, but I, I have a sense that you have to read in order to fuel your yes. writing spirit. Yes. Do you deliberately prioritize reading? How do you make time in your busy life to keep reading and, and keep vital? Well, in the midst of a project, when I'm working on a book, it's everything I can do to do all the reading that's necessary in order to write the book. But when the book is finished, then I have a chance to lapse into things that I want to read myself. Right. And I love fiction, great fiction. I love the classics. I love Anthony Trollope. I think he's addictive. I like loved Ruth Rendell, I still do. She just died recently, the wonderful detective writer, but who was really a brilliant novelist. But I love Willa Cather and, and Edith Wharton, and I I love... Um, so you make time to read in that? Yes, that and, but, and I also read some history and biography, of course, and travel books. I'm very eclectic, and I sometimes go back and read something I've read before, mm-hmm. find that I like it even more than I did then. Sometimes I find this isn't as good as I thought it was. And I like to read good writers. I don't like to read. I, I like to read up. I like to read over my head, if anything, rather than down. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David McCullough, and uh, his latest book is The Wright Brothers. David, one book I particularly related to of yours is The Greater Journey, Americans in Paris. And in it, you made the point that not all pioneers went west. What did you mean by that? Well, they went east to the old country. And, of course, the old country is, for most of us, where we came from. And if you want to understand American history, you have to understand European history. You have to understand the English and the Scotch and the Irish and the Italians. And you have to understand why they wanted to come here and what they brought with them and what aspirations they brought with them that were not possible to achieve back home. So these were pioneers in, in a cultural sense, yes, going to the old They're going to the old country to, uh-huh. to get training. And enlargement 
of outlook and mind. I get this sense that you have a particular um, appreciation or fascination in bridges. You wrote a book about the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, You love the bridges of Paris. Yes. What is it about bridges? I suppose in part it's because I grew up with them. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which has more bridges even than Paris. And they're all different, and they're all, to me, spectacular. And I always say, how in the world did they do that? Sailing under those bridges on the, in the Seine River is such yes. a delight, with yes. the different pride of different ages, decorating each well, When you come into Pittsburgh now, yeah. you come through a tunnel, and all of a sudden, whoa, you come out of the tunnel, and there it is, where the Monongahela meets the Allegheny to form the Ohio, and all these bridges are conferring. And you think this is a center of, of action, and it, of course, is, has been for a long yeah. time. But I dearly love buildings, and particularly... I'm crazy about Gothic architecture. I just think it's breathtaking and inspiring. There's something... What is it? What is it about Gothic architecture? It's reaching upward. Yeah. It's using light. It's filled with light. That's what it is. Yes, in the light of those magnificent windows. And it's sculpted. And it's stone to last. And, oh, heavens, my goodness... Well, those first Americans you talked about in The Greater Journey, their first stop was Rouen, and it was a cathedral that they saw. Yeah. Who was it that said, if this is all I saw, it was worth it? Yeah, James Fenimore Cooper. Went across the Atlantic. Yeah, and they just been through a terrible voyage across the ocean. Now, you talk about all the energy around um, bridges. I'm fascinated about the wrong side of the track, which in Europe would be the wrong side of the river. Yes. Isn't it interesting how trains brought the the economy into American towns as we were growing? But in Europe, I think the equivalent is... Rivers. Yeah. And think about all the wrong sides of the rivers in Europe. Yes. You got in Rome, Trastevere. Right. Yeah. In Paris, the left yep. bank, in London, yep. and in Florence, Alter. Well, rivers, river cities are story cities, always. That's it, isn't it? Yes. Whether it's Paris or uh, St. Louis or Pittsburgh or New Orleans, uh, they're story cities because people are coming and going, coming and going. But the American road, whether that road is the river or the trail, or the railroad, the American road is a very big part of the story of of our country. And if you're going west to new opportunity, or you're someone, an African-American coming north for freedom, it's all this journey, the road. And if you stay home, you don't get ever drive on the road. You got to get out there and see (laughs) the world. Yes, you do. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David McCollum. You know, you've written books for 50 years now. Looking back, do you see an overarching theme in your books? Yes, people who set out to accomplish something worthy and don't give up with with setbacks and defeats along the way and achieve that objective through ingenuity and courage and purpose, high purpose. You seem to live your life with high purpose, and you've had enough success where you could say, that's good, but you keep writing. It's a lot of work. What motivates you? I love the work. Yeah. The joy is in the work. It is, isn't it? Yeah, the joy is... Yes, it's wonderful to have a book succeed. It's wonderful to have people stop you in the street and thank you for the book. But the real joy is in the work. You know, I have a feeling that education in our country these days is more and more geared towards training workers instead of thinkers. What are yes. your thoughts on that? Well, one of, the, one of the points of my Wright Brothers book, though, I don't belabor it, I don't sermonize about it, mm-hmm. is here are these two men who broke through one of the greatest puzzles of all time, a technical achievement without precedent, who had a full liberal arts education at home. 
And today there's this tendency to encourage people who want to go into tech, high-tech right. work to skirt the— Liberal arts is disposable. Yeah. yeah, avoid it if you can. It's, 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 it's superfluous. You don't need it. Where, in fact, we all need it. You know, many, many years ago, I got a history degree, and then I thought, well, I better get something practical, so I got a business degree, too. Yes. Now, when I look back on it, it's clear to me, my history degree has been at least as practical and valuable to me as my business degree. I'm sure it has. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's history, a tragedy. History when teaches it's, you about cause and effect. It teaches you about the importance of leadership. It teaches you that almost nothing of consequence is ever accomplished alone. It's a joint effort. And it's a great antidote to the hubris of the present. We think we're so nifty. We think we're so accomplished. We think we're so cool. And when you go back and see what... I remember one time standing in front of Botticelli's Birth of Venus in the Uffizi Gallery and thinking, oh, good heavens, one man did that way back then? It's so humbling it just, and inspiring. Oh, it was... It was one of the most breathtaking moments of my life. So that is a pretty exciting mission, and I have a feeling that's the mission you're on. Well, I hope so. To fight historical illiteracy. I want people, I want my fellow citizens to know the story of their country. I want to bring that history alive in a way that will give us a greater sense of who we are, how we got to be where we are, how hard those who went before us worked to give us the advantages and the privileges that we must, must, must not ever take for granted. David McCullough, you are doing that magnificently for, for millions of people. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Yep. Keep on writing. I always say keep on traveling. Keep on writing. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the traveling goes with it. Amen. That's a given. Yep. All right. Thank you so much. Thank Best you. Wishes. And there's a few more lonesome cities that I'd like to see just a few more lonesome cities than I'd like to see. You can share your passion with us for finding just the right words to describe your travel impressions in the form of a haiku poem. It can be about exotic places you've visited or just the feeling you get from something close to home. There's a place for you to submit your original travel haiku in the radio section of ricksteves.com. From time to time on the show, we select a few of our favorites to share with you, like these. Erin Foley lives in Kauai High on the big island of Hawaii. When she visited Barra on the southwest coast of Ireland, the rocky formations along the coast inspired her to write this haiku for us. Soft rain where roses never wilt, and harsh seas cut creatures' schist, spire edge. Paul Holler of Arlington Heights, Illinois, sends us this haiku about the Greek island of Samos. Gem blue Aegean. Worn hills roll out and on, walking Aesop's road. Nine-year-old Simone Justine Went writes this one about her affection for the Smith River, the only undammed major river in California. She wrote it while sitting along the riverbank below her family's cabin near Crescent City. It's in the water. Fun, fun, fun is what we have. Cool is what we are. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the BBC in London for their studio help this week and to Gretchen Strog for reading the travel haiku. 
There's a link to send us your original haiku in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.